Hey, this is Marty McFly, and you're listening to Hydrate Level 4 Presents Podstalgic, a film podcast on core temp arts. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you telling me you built a time machine out of a podcast? Welcome to another episode of Podstalgic. This is a movie podcast where we take a nostalgic look and rediscover movies new and old. But for this episode, we have a fantastic interview from actor Jeffrey Weissman, who many of my listeners know that I'm a huge Back to the Future fan. So you guys know that this is something that I was very excited about and not only had the honor, but the pleasure of speaking with. One of the big reasons that I wanted to speak with Mr. Weissman is because till this day, there's still people out there that didn't even know that he was the second George McFly. A lot of people think that it was still played by Crispin Glover, very much the way they thought that Elizabeth Shue was still Claudia Wells from part one. So he talks a little bit about that and also, you know, speaking with Crispin about taking over the role of George. But also we get to learn about Mr. Weissman, the man, where he came from, what he did before he got into acting and some of the other things that he has done. That to me was also important to learn about him. And this is our conversation. I want to thank you for the opportunity, uh, you know, for allowing me to speak with you. And just wanted to relay that this is a a huge honor for me to have you on the show. And now I want to start off, um, you know, just kind of going back and learning a little bit more about you. Uh, I think a lot of listeners, you know, know that you uh, have played in many roles. You, You know, you were in... Uh, was it Pale Rider with Clint Eastwood? And obviously you were in uh, Back to the Future. Uh, I call it Act 2 and 3 of the Back to the Future saga, because to me it's one big movie. Well, the second and third part were originally one script called Paradox, as you probably know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I guess they figured they could double their money by making, making them two films. And yes, I've done uh, a lot of other films and, and TV shows. Mm-hmm. And... Where where was it that you grew up? In Los Angeles. I was born in Glendale, raised all over L.A., from uh, Pasadena to Santa Monica. Uh, played at Ray in Brentwood and West Hollywood and Burbank. Okay, so you've been on the West Coast most of your life. Yeah, uh, a little time in, in Corsgold, uh, north of Fresno, a little time in Lake Tahoe, and a couple of years in San Diego. So... You know, we we moved around a bit, but always on the West Coast. Though I love the East Coast. In fact, I've often been accused of being or sounding like someone from the East Coast, which is odd. It really? I, Any I in particular area? No, I, you know, I, I get along great with people from New York and New Jersey, and I have dear friends that I hang with in, in the Carolinas, and, and I have a great time in Florida when I'm there. You know, I, I like the East Coast just fine, and Midwest. I'm pretty happy wherever I go in the world. Uh, I myself was born in Texas, but I grew up in Portland, Oregon. And when I'm usually around other Southerners, I, I think that twang comes out a little bit, which I never noticed, but people do point out. So I, I can understand. Well, sometimes I have people say, uh, well, are you are you British? And I think in my youth, I tried to be more refined or sound more refined than I, I probably gave myself credit for being. Uh I, my grandmother, who was really the only one who, in my family who encouraged me to pursue my my acting, was raised and born and raised in Mayfair in London, and she had a very lovely eloquence about her. and And I know that I often will over enunciate or articulate, and, and people will say, "Well, are you English?" And, and I probably picked up a bit of that from her and emulated her a bit. So I'd, I'd get that as well. You know, being an actor, you put on accents and you could be from anywhere. No, absolutely. <laughs> uh, you've mentioned acting at a young age. It, I, I think I read on your website that um, it was something about a babysitter that, that was just into watching movies all the time or something. I uh, had influence from my parents, either manage or owned uh, private clubs, and they had actors, producers, composers from showbiz at their club. My dad was partners for a while with Lauren Green from Bonanza, George Bassman, who was the uh, composer or musical arranger on The Wizard of Oz. You know, people in the industry, uh, Mike Frankovich, who produced 
lot of great films and also helped found the American Film Institute. These were all his contemporaries hanging out at his club and playing cards or backgammon, what have you. And from time to time, I would go with my parents either to the club or sometimes with my babysitter. And there was a, a sitter of mine who I was very fond of. In fact, I always thought that my older brother and she would, would marry in my fantasy, my childhood fantasies. And I remember going to the, my, my dad's club and meeting Omar Sharif, who would be uh, playing games at, at the club and watching her kind of flip out, you know, meeting him. And then not an hour or two later, we'd go and see him up on the big screen in one of his films and, and she'd flip out again. And, and so I thought to myself, you know, well, if that's how to get her attention, I'll become an actor. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think I, you know, I was told that almost since I came out of the womb, I was always performing or being funny or the clown at the center of attention. And uh, so it was, it's kind of natural. My wife says that I'm often very funny, even in my sleep. <laughs> Yeah, that's a interesting um, visual there. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's a it's something I've been drawn to since early on, and in grade school, uh, I'd find ways of incorporating performance into my schoolwork. You know, doing if in history class we were studying the Egyptians, I would do a newscast from the, the Pharaoh's pyramid, or you know, I would incorporate performing wherever I could, and then eventually found my way to the stage and then realized that I, I needed to get some good training. So it, it took me a while to find my way to kind of reining in my unruly hamminess. And for a time, you also uh, worked at Universal Studios. Yes, uh, I had a pretty good run doing supporting roles in films, even some co co-star roles in films like Twilight Zone movie and and as you mentioned, Pale Rider with Clint Eastwood, and was in between television and film work. And uh, a friend of mine who, in fact, handled lookalikes, called me up and asked if I'd ever played Stan Laurel. And I said, no, but I, I could use the work. What do you got? And, and his Oliver Hardy partner had lost his Stan Laurel that was working on the Universal Studios tour in Hollywood and needed a replacement. So I went up and auditioned, and it turned out this actor who played Oliver Hardy up there knew my work from a stage production of Romeo and Juliet, where I'd played Mercutio, and he turned to the boss and said, this guy's got talent, I'll train him, we'll, we'll get him in shape. And within a couple of years, oh, I'm sorry, uh, within a couple of weeks, I, I did a passable Stan Laurel, and that ended up lasting 13 years. So I was the number one Stan Laurel the second string Charlie Chaplin and Groucho Marx up at Universal Studios. So if you were at the tour during any of those years, you may have taken a photo with me or seen my antics. Uh, that's amazing. That's a long run too, 13 years. Well, it was lovely in that it was a job where I got to perform, you know, be in character for eight hours a day and make people happy from around the world. I got, I learned to greet in 15 diff different languages. Uh, and then also, I often had backups. So if I needed to take the day off for an audition or take a few hours off for an audition, they, they were pretty flexible. Um, it, was, it was quite a gift. And was it during that time you also had an audition for War Games? No, no. The, uh, War Games was way before that. I, I had found out really the only way to make it in, in uh, Hollywood was to really show casting directors that, that I had training, that I was taking it seriously. I had been working in films like The Rose and FM and I Want to Hold Your Hand and uh, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, but that was mostly as a background extra work. And, it, and ultimately, that work isn't very fulfilling if you really want to sink your teeth into a part or take yourself seriously as an actor. And uh, I was told by a I think it was Helen Hunt's dad, Gordon Hunt, uh, that I had talent, but I needed the training. So I, I went after training and, and moved up to Northern California to attend the American Conservatory Theater. And while studying up north, I fell into an opportunity where uh, a wonderful casting director named Walena Sita and a director named Martin Brest were having open calls for a, a lead in a major motion picture that was called The Genius. And they had open calls in 
in New York, Chicago, and Seattle, and Los Angeles, and San Francisco. And from that open call where there were about 500 guys, I kind of went to the head of the class and, and got a screen test. And the film at that point had uh, Warren Oates attached to it. And, and unfortunately, during this whole process, he passed away in the film at the studio that it, uh, it was to be produced, MGM, it, it merged with United Artists and the executives couldn't decide whether or not they were going to go forward with the film. And eventually, after like a almost a year of turnaround and all these different changes, they went ahead with screen tests and I finally came to LA to test and I had an agent pursue me. Um, and that film changed its name from The Genius to War Games. And that was in 1982. Uh, I tested with uh, Ali Sheedy and, and uh, let's see, Eric Stoltz and Dana Carvey, Brian Backer, and uh, John, what's his name from Christine, John uh, Crawford. Anyway, uh, there John were a handful Wood? of actors. No, testing for the lead, uh, they were mostly young actors. I see. And of the dozen or so young actors they were looking at, uh, I think I was the only one to come in uh, from the screen tests that they did in all those major cities. So I, I felt pretty special. And, and uh, uh, needless to say, I didn't have probably the credits to give myself credibility uh, to the executives. And and all of the actors, even Sean Penn had uh, interviewed for the film. And I remember talking with Sean years later, and he said, I always thought there was something odd going on there. Um, so he turned it down. Matthew had had... Uh, I think a, a credit working with Neil Simon already and, and had, a, I think, a little more credibility to have a, a large budget feature weighted on his shoulders. Uh, so they went with Matthew and, and uh, the rest was, you know, history for, for that. Although a year later, uh, I was set to test for the lead in a film called Lady Hawk and was actually on my way to my uh, uh, screen test at Warner Brothers when my agent contacted me and, and said that uh, it was off, that Matthew had come down in his asking price, I guess. <laughs> I was like, darn, you know, I was going to rock that one too. Back to back years. Yeah. Nonetheless, I, I started working in 83 or actually the, towards the end of 82 on Twilight Zone movie, the, the segment with George Miller directing John Lithgow reprising Will Shatner's role, uh, Nightmare at uh, 30,000 feet. And that was a lot of fun to be on that side. That was amazing. But uh, at Universal, this is where you were asked, working as Laurel, uh, if you would be a photo double for Chris McClever? Yeah. Uh, so Twilight Zone was 82. So the call for, I, ironically, in 83, I did a film at the American Film Institute with John O'Hurley that co-starred Chris McClover. And I thought Chrisman was a fascinating actor and got his number, tried to stay in touch. And the, a year or so later, when Back to the Future came out, I was like, hey, I know that guy. He's, he's rocking this. He's knocking it out of the park. You know, George McFly was amazing. And um, thought it was, it was very cool. I even left him a message how, how wonderful I thought he was. And kind of forgot about it. And uh, I, at that time, I was co-starring in, in Tail Rider with Clint Eastwood and also had co-starred on a couple different uh, or guest starred on a couple different TV series and uh, then 87 started working at Universal as Laurel and Chaplin and, and Groucho putting those together and then uh, I guess it was towards the end of 88 maybe into 89 I got a call from that same agent that lookalike agent who got me the position or the opportunity at Universal to play Stan Laurel who asked if I knew who Crispin Glover was. And I said, of course. And uh, he said, well, production is looking for a photo double for him. And I, I needed work at that time. I needed to get my medical through SAG uh, because my uh, ex-wife was having our second child and I need, <laughs> needed the help. Uh, so get me in there. And I, I went and in, interviewed with the assistant directors and then they talked with, Obviously, Bob Zemeckis about me, and and then I went through casting, and then started fitting for prosthetic makeup, basically a mask, and did a screen test as young George McFly. And at that test, Zemeckis and and company 
deemed that I would be a suitable replacement, I guess. And I, it really wasn't until this 11th hour before uh, going in to shoot. I, I think it was on a, a at, after five o'clock on a Friday before being expected on set on Monday morning that casting called and told my agency, my agent, that they wanted me for the role of George. And so it was, it was all kind of awkward because I couldn't fathom how they were going to make a sequel to these films where Crispin was so vital to it. And in my mind, I was wearing the, the makeup and all because they were going to need George here and George there, maybe out of, out of focus over there at the same time. Like they do, you know, with when Michael's up on the catwalk in part two or, or while he's down below playing, you know, Marty on both the catwalk on stage at the same time, this type of thing. But nonetheless, uh, you know, I didn't want to ask questions or rock the boat. Uh, I needed the work. And, uh, and, and so we, I went with it. One thing I, I did hear uh, in, in an interview of yours is that the, the makeup, the prosthetics that they put you in, this is four hours of, of work that they had to do every day. Yeah, eventually we got good at it enough where we took about a half an hour off. So it, we got it down to three and a half hours to apply and an hour to, to remove at the end of the day. And, and working with such great makeup artists was really thrilling. Uh, there was a lot of history in those makeup trailers with the Westmores, you know, Marvin Westmore and his family, and then uh, Kenny Myers and, and uh, Mike Mills, who was my kind of personal makeup guy. He was the foreman on Beetlejuice, Nancy Vasta, his associate, really terrific people. And we had some days where, you know, Michael, Tom, Leah, Myself, we we all needed to be in in makeup, so they bring in extra help and uh, a gentleman named Zoltan and and his wife, who won the the Academy Award for the makeup on Mask, came in. Now, ironically, when I was a manager of a Victorian apartment in in San Francisco, I had this kind of biker chick as one of my tenants who shared with me stories about her her son who had this terrible deformity and it turned out that mask was about her boy. Oh, wow. Um, so it was kind of, kind of, uh, interesting, uh, synchronicity. Um, so working with these great makeup artists was, was really thrilling. And I'd hear wonderful stories in the makeup room and, and get to spend a lot of time with, with the stars like Leah hearing the wonderful stories that they had to share. And then your shooting days were, were about 20 hours long. Often, uh, I remember during the McFly household of 2015 or two, uh, we had uh, in one week, I remember a 19 hour day, a, a 22 hour day, a, a 26 hour day. And, and a lot of this was also because we only had Michael in the evening during the day he was shooting the, the last season of family ties. And so we'd only get him in the evening and, uh, make the most use of that. Unfortunately, you know, I, I had asked Mike, "When do you sleep?" And he's in the limo in between the studios. <laughs> like he didn't, he didn't get much rest. Also, a lot of people don't realize uh, in part three, the role of Seamus McFly, of course, was was to be played by Crispin. And when Crispin didn't get come back, when he chose to turn it down, they really couldn't put me in that role because no one would know me from with my own face from, from no, no me from Adam. Uh, and the makeup wasn't, how shall I say, natural enough to, to get away with anything. So they, as if he didn't have enough to do, they gave the role to Michael. <laughs> I, I think that's interesting that they chose to do it that way because even Claudia Wells didn't return, you know, for her personal reasons. And they recasted her role with Elizabeth Shue, you know, with your situation, I, you know, I don't see what the big problem was. Well, I, I would, lo would have loved that. Um, but, you know, they, they have their reason. I don't sure. know. You'll have to get Bob Gale or Robert Zemeckis on, on your show. And, and I, I would love that. <laughs> um, okay, so at the time, Robert Zemeckis, he was also uh, filming Who Framed Roger Rabbit, correct? I think he did uh, Roger Rabbit uh, before, before we, we started shooting. I don't think he would do the 
enormous task of both those films simultaneously. Roger Rabbit, I think, was a year or two before uh, Back to the Future Part Two. I remember asking Bob Z uh, while we were on set if he was going to do a, a sequel to Roger Rabbit because I loved it so much. And and he wasn't so sure that he would. And I mean, he did he did love working that project, but he had some some reservations about doing a sequel. That's interesting because I I must have misremembered uh, something that I read or maybe an interview that I saw that I thought that uh, perhaps juggling the two movies uh, was such a challenge, you know, that he felt that uh, he wasn't able to give Back to the Future two like uh, his entire focus. Uh, so it could be one of those things that was just misreported. Oh, okay. So let me just back up and, and listen to what you, you asked. You asked if Who Framed Roger Rabbit was shooting simultaneously as Back to Future Part 2? Yes. Yeah, no, no. I, I'm pretty sure it was already released well before we were shooting Part 2. Oh, okay. Otherwise, I wouldn't have asked him on set. I remember saying, Bob, do you, are you going to do a, a sequel? To Roger Rabbit, and he, he said no. And I, I said, was well, the, the shots too complicated, mixing animation and live action? He goes, no, I've, I've actually got more complicated shots here on on this film than I did on that. So, uh, yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure Roger Rabbit was out already. Now, another role that you were interested uh, in was playing the Western Union guy uh, at the end of Part Two. I was told by Bob Gale you know, to find something that I liked or, or they would find something for me to do without all the prosthetic makeup to make up for all the torture I was enduring, hanging upside down and wearing all the makeup and long hours. And so I suggested the Western Union guy. I uh, was happy to take a, a cowboy or any kind of support role, um, but it, it never materialized. When When I asked about the Western Union guy, he thought that it had already been cast. And sure enough, Joe Flaherty did a great job with that. Not even uh, one of Mad Dog Tannen's uh, goons. I would have been happy with that. It, uh, <laughs> it just didn't materialize, and it also might have been lip service on Bob Gale's part. Yeah, I, I think uh, Mad Dog's probably my favorite Tannen. He's just so out there. Yeah, he's... Uh, <laughs> Tom was having a, a field day. I, I love... Uh, that when I was cast, I was given by production some of the old screen tests. And in them, you see Crispin and, and Leah and, and, and Tom really having a lot of fun, often improvising these scenes just to let the camera study their makeup to see if uh, the makeup was working with what lighting and so on and so forth. And in some of the improvs, one of my favorite things, uh, you see Tom Wilson standing next to Crispin in a uh, doorway or something. And, and uh, he's just kidding around. He, and he says, McFly, McFly, what is that? A, an Irish bug, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so that's where he, he comes up with that line. I don't, I don't believe that was in the original script. It's um, something Tom came up with. It's re- always really fun to watch the, the creative process. Yeah, what was it like uh, behind the scenes, you know, when the cameras weren't rolling? Uh, was everybody just kind of rehearsing their parts or were people, you know, having a good time and just cracking jokes? Well, it's it's work. It's a really focused work atmosphere. There are crew people, you know, anticipating the director's next move. There are people who have been working for hours already who are going to take a break and we'll have some fun conversations and all, but, but everyone's really staying on task. It, it was a, a lovely set. There was very little tension as it should be in any good production. There's the tension always mounts towards the 20th hour or when some complication is making it hard for production to, to get a shot just right. You know, what, whatever, there's so many hundreds of things that can go south. The best sets are those that don't have tension that are relaxed and focused and and Zemeckis kept it that way you know he was he was very smart casting competent actors on top of a a great script that script had gone through so many rewrites and was honed really terrific to be a part of but the whole scheme the the family of both the crew and the cast and then uh you know I've I've watched other great directors you know I've worked with George Miller as I mentioned and, and Clint Eastwood and their crews generally are, are there because they anticipate the needs of the director. They they have probably 
homes of their own with mortgages and they want to keep that payment going so they, they know what's coming and, and are prepared. And that's really the key to success, you know, preparation, meeting opportunity, and uh, they'll keep being asked back, you know, if they play their cards right. Right. And it sounds like uh, Robert Zemeckis really kept a great group of people around him. Yeah. And, you know, there, of course, were long hours where I wasn't working. I would go and hang out with Billy Zane and, and we'd, you know, listen to music in, in the trailers or, or I'd hang out with Michael J. Fox and have a beer and, and relax and, and uh, tell stories. You know, it, it was a really good atmosphere of camaraderie. You know, at first, of course, it was awkward because anyone who, uh, in their right mind would look at me in, in the young George makeup and go, well, what the heck are you supposed to be? And, and it was obvious they were trying to uh, emulate Crispin um, so the audience wouldn't know that there was any difference. You know, they, they were in a corner. Crispin had them in the corner. They kind of had Crispin in a corner. And in my opinion, they didn't, Spielberg and Zemeckis and company, probably didn't see Crispin as the star that he had been climbing to get to by the time part two was being cast. And Crispin obviously, you know, saw himself as, as something more than what they were offering. I think they were offering him either the same money as, as Leah and Tom, or maybe not even as much, but he, you know, wasn't going to allow that. But then again, the part also had been reduced. Part one, as you know, was really George's story get George and Lorraine together so Marty can come into existence. Whereas part two, part one is George's, part two is Marty's, and part three is Doc's story. Uh, so George had been kind of reduced to a support player. And uh, so how were they going to get around not having the original actor? Well, if it wasn't me, it was going to be someone else, you know, in, in probably that same makeup. You you mentioned uh, hanging out with like a Billy Zane and... Um you know, maybe having a beer with uh, uh, Michael J. Fox. I remember a gag reel. I think it was from the first movie where uh, they were filming the the scene where um, Marty and Lorraine are uh, at the dance, but still inside the vehicle in, in the car waiting in the parking lot. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think they replaced uh, the flask that he was drinking out of with actual alcohol. I think that was on the first film. Right. And on the second one, I don't remember any any gags like that going down. I see. Were there oh, any other, okay. any other gags? We we had fun. There were there were there were marks that might have been overshot. There were uh, th props that went south. We had one huge complication with um, Lorraine in 2015 at uh, Marty and, and Jennifer's house when they had the projection on the window of uh, a pastoral scene, and it was you know, really is shade. And she, she pulls the shade to reveal it's a brick wall there. And we couldn't mm -hmm. make that effect work without seeing the flash of the slide projector uh, going off and blowing the effect. Um, so it didn't look as, you know, futuristic as it, as it could. And we literally spent hours just correcting that one little effect. Uh, I remember it was like three in the morning and Bob Zemeckis sent us all to second dinner uh, while well, he figured it out and we came back and, and this is the key to a, a great director is you just solve problems. And, and when he came back, he said, Leah, how about if you just pull the string back on the shade forward, face the camera, say your line, uh, tilting it out, we'll get the projector off as you let it go. And we got it in one take. Oh, wow. So it, it was really a nice testament of, of someone who's been working 25 hours already on little sleep to begin with figuring out uh, a technical problem and getting everyone wrapped so they don't go into extra golden time or whatever it was by that time it was probably like that 26 hour day like i mentioned yikes i can't even imagine the the long hours and 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 you know this was all pre-cgi so we did have some computer work we had a program running the tondro camera which allowed splicing of the film inside the camera, which allowed Michael to play multiple roles or Tom to play, you know, Biff in, in various places. Um, and that was pretty advanced, but it was also extremely uh, analog is not the, the word I want, um, where, where we had to match the blocking of 
the computer controlled camera as opposed to, you know, setting up blocking and it could be, you know, if we miss, it's not a big deal. We had to be completely precise because if the camera was splicing the film inside it, everything, all the movement had to be, if Marty Jr. is passing the iced tea to Marty Sr. or, or Marlene, it's got to be exact on the mark. Otherwise, it's not going to match. Right. Kind of like uh, what they did with Michael Keaton in Multiplicity. Yes. I worked with Michael Keaton. He's a great guy. I had a lot of on fun. Johnny Dangerously. Yes. Yeah. Terrific guy. Just a lot of fun with Joe Piscopo and uh, Mary Lou Henner and, and uh, Maureen Stapleton. What a gift she was. Oh, my God. Anyway, yeah. I digress. <laughs> Oh, no, um, Michael Keaton, was he the type to um, be in character, uh, even off camera? or No, not so much. You know, he's not... Okay. I mean, he, being dressed and, and finding the physicalization and such, you could see him retaining that, but in talking with him off camera, no, he, he didn't seem to still be in, say, like, uh, you know, Sean Penn would be... Sean, uh, if the character is far from his natural state of being, he will really ground into that character all through production. Uh, like, um, uh, what's her name did on Blue Jasmine? You know, you, you have a handful of actors and actresses who, if the character, I think, is either far from their core person, that they find it easier to stay in that character to maintain it all the time. Um, and, and it may come out of insecurity or it's just a technique that they're they're used to doing you know, I can't poo-poo it or uh, say anything bad about it. It is awkward, though, when you're trying to talk to them as a person and they're still in the character. It's it's interesting. But I, <laughs> like you know, and I've mentioned, you know, I'd stay in character of Stan Laurel or Charlie Chaplin or Groucho Marx for eight hours while working at Universal. And people would come up right. and saying, you know, people who did, did the research would come up and say, you're Jeffrey Weissman, you're George McClough. And I'd know I'm Stan Laurel. You know, you got me a mistake. You know, you, people try to get me to break. Uh, you know, right. I do environmental theater as Mark Twain or, or uh, a Renaissance fool or Lord or any number of characters. And, uh, you know, it's interesting, the role playing. Uh, and yet at the same time, it can be really upsetting for people who are trying to get you to break character or you to get a straight answer from you. <laughs> it could be fun. <laughs> now, speaking of characters, uh, I, I am curious, who would you say, you know, that maybe surprise uh, listeners that are very much like their character from uh, Back to the Future? I, I'd imagine Thomas F. Wilson is probably the complete opposite. Tom's a sweetheart. Tom's a, you know, a really genuinely lovely soul, spirit. He's, life has been sometimes a challenge for him. He's uh, got a great sense of humor. You know, he's a stand-up comic. He's very, very smart. Uh, I've had really great, great experiences with Tom. Um, it's interesting to see what he's chosen to do. You know, for years he would do no Back to the Future themed fan cons or events until really last year he started, he came back after a hiatus. Right. Uh, and, and everyone's got their reasons. I'm not necessarily privy to reasons why people, you know, Crispin, of course, stays clear far and wide from Back to the Future related events just because it's a sore spot still for him. I, um, I would love to see Bob Gale and, and Crispin hug <laughs> and finally get over their animosities um, and do something, you know, for Michael's charity, you know, or the fans. Mm -hmm. I mean, it ultimately is about the fans and, and Michael. And, uh, you know, if these guys could get over their ego stuff, it'd be a, a beautiful day. Absolutely. I, I agree with that. To kind of bring it back to uh, uh, Michael real quick, I enjoy the scene where he has to play three different characters to include his daughter, Marlene. What was it like on set when they would film Michael as his daughter? Well, it, it was, first of all, hurry up and wait. You know, we'd probably have shot most of the scene with Michael playing Marty or Marty Jr. And then he would have to go off and, and change it. Now, remember with the prosthetic makeup, it, it, the application always added a, a couple hours at least. And then 
with Marlene, it was, you know, uh, take the prosthetics off if he was Marty previously and then put him in the, the female makeup and then wardrobe and wig. And I, I remember, I remember the wig he had as Marlene first round that I saw was much better looking than the, the red bangs, but, uh, they ended up going with that. Um, <laughs> You know, it was it, it was amusing, but no one's going to laugh at Michael J. Fox, you know, um, while he's working uh, to, because it's funny looking. It's, you're just going to keep it inside and respect because there's work to be done. We got to tell a story. Though, um, so, yeah, it was uh, it was amusing. I remember when I came to the front door, and you might might have heard this before. Marlene would open the door, and my head was hanging right about butt level with her. <laughs> and they kind of gave her these orange hot pants that looked like, you know, they were stuffed a bit to give them some butt and uh, that gave them kind of a pumpkin look. And, and I improvised how's granddad's little pumpkin because it just seemed to fit, you know? And, <laughs> okay. So you improvised that line. Yeah. I got to do a little comedy. <laughs> there was a little comedy in the fruit, please. In the kitchen, Lorraine says to, I think it was Marlene or Marty Jr. Give your granddad a, a piece of fruit, and and they gave me a banana. And you try to peel a banana upside down and not have the, the peel slap you in the <laughs> face. You know, I had some funny little bits that I came up with, and I remember Zemeckis laughing a little. And I'm sorry it didn't stay in, but I have a few rare stills. So if if you listeners out there want a, a copy of that still. Uh, I'll, I'll sign it for you. Just write me through my website, jeffreyweissman.com. There you go. I like that. Do you remember, uh, like, was there any, I, I'm sure it wasn't on a gag row, but any kind of outtakes that really stood out, you know, from, from filming actually from either two or three? I, 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 uh, gosh, probably nothing that, uh, isn't on the, the Blu-ray DVDs. I, I can't tell you that, you know, I, I know stories that uh, probably I can't tell publicly. <laughs> sure. But um, anything that you can share. Uh, the things that I can share. Let's see. Let's see. Uh, you know, there were mostly, you know, just hardworking days with, with people having a good time at the end of the day, you know, celebrating a, a, a job well done. Um, there may have been a few missed moments. You know, I, I remember... I'm backstage, George and Lorraine are backstage uh, saying, Marty, that was quite a performance or whatever. And, and he, and uh, Michael is Marty part one, running out the door and knocking Michael as Marty in part two out. And we had a couple, right. a couple misfires on that. I remember those were pretty funny to, to watch the replays on. Um, gosh. That scene gets me every time. It's very much like in part one where he gets hit by the car and has, you know, bangs his head on this, uh, on the pavement. Right. And it's very similar where, uh, yeah, he gets hit by the door with, uh, Marty from part one. You know, it, it just came up recently. Someone pointing out what, it, what is George doing at seven thirty in the morning on a Saturday at the, at the cafe <laughs> and then running off bicycling over to Lorraine's to, be a peeping tom at her in the tree outside her house you know george what are you what suppressed stuff do you have going on george i gotta think about these things yeah it's it's definitely research for his science fiction novel uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people don't know that um that uh, inside the radiation suit in part one you know uh, i'm Darth Vader from the planet vulcan um, right uh, most of that is not michael uh, it's a, uh, an actor named Mark who, ironically, I'd met uh, the year before the uh, reunion on, in 2015. Uh, he came to me. Uh, I was I was signing at a, a small show up in Santa Rosa, Northern California, and he said, you know, I'm inside the radiation suit in, that, in part one. I was like, huh? And sure enough, he, uh, Michael had been asked to come open the World's Fair, I guess, in Montreal or Toronto or somewhere in Canada, and he wasn't around to shoot that that film. So this guy, Mark, was the original stand-in for, for Eric Stoltz, who carried on to stand in for Michael and did all of the radiation oh, suit very stuff. Interesting. So a little trivia there. A lot of people don't know. 
something new. That is interesting. Yeah, yeah, because I feel some kind of behind the scenes uh, where it shows that scene where it's actually still Michael's voice, like within the suit. So I wonder if he was just providing that, you know, for, uh, you know, like blocking purposes and stuff like that for George to react, uh, you know, to his lines. Sounds like it. Yeah. Um, have you, what are some locations from the trilogy that you have not visited yourself? That I haven't visited. Hmm. Well, you know, I've, of course, was, was at the McFly home, uh, both in 85, where we shot that last scene in, in part three that I'm in. Mm-hmm. And I've visited the exterior of 2015. I, I came out to that, even though I'm only in the interiors, which were all in sound, on soundstage, I came out specifically to meet Chris Lloyd because uh, he and I had not met. We had no scenes together in part two. And um, I asked my makeup artist, to uh, Mike Mills, to introduce us. So I came out at three in the morning and, and met Chris. And Chris is very quiet. I mean, even if you know him well, he's still kind of quiet. Uh, and, and that's how it was, you know, at three or four o'clock in the morning when I finally got to meet him and, you know, I, I'm a big fan. He goes, Oh, thanks. And we kind of stared at each other for a while and that was it. But it wasn't actually until we started appearing at some of the trilogy screenings together where we'd be holed up in a projectionist booth in a theater for 40 minutes before we'd go on that I, I got him to open up and found out, uh, that he, he does talk, you know, we, he's a, a, a great guy. We've had some really great interactions over the years. Um, let's see. So I, the other sets that I haven't or have been on, uh, I guess it was the reunion. The We're Going Back, the first We're Going Back event, which I think was 2013, uh, that I returned to Whittier High where we did the exteriors of the high school. And right. uh, that was kind of cool to go back there. It was cool to go back to the... Methodist Church in Hollywood, where we shot the under Enchantment Under the Sea dance. Um, really fun to, to go back and go, wow, it seems like that was a dream, and here we're back again. And, uh, you know, I've gone to Sonora, but I don't think I've gone to the sets, or if there are any extant uh, for part three of the, the Western set. Did you uh, go to La Puente Hills Mall? I, you know, I don't think I have. Oh, there we go. There's a location. They've done several events there, and I don't think I've been to the, that, that mall, though. I'd love to, though. That's uh, one of the two locations I actually had time to visit when uh, we went to Hollywood just a few years back. Uh, we definitely went to the McFly house, and I kind of just stood in the middle of the road where the you know the car takes off at the very end. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just it was surreal. That's one of the things that I really love about this trilogy is that it's real. You know, you can visit a lot of these locations. Yeah, and then I think uh, just around the corner or a block or two away is is uh, Strickland's house, right? Oh, you know, I did not know that. If I did, I would have gone there myself. You know, maybe steal a newspaper off their porch or something. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, you know, because I, I played uh, uh, Stan Laurel, Laurel and Hardy. Um, I had experience with this sort of thing in the past. The, the steps that Laurel and Hardy take the piano up and down in uh, the musical box, the music box, and then earlier in Hats Off with the ice box. Um, which is a missing film of theirs. Th- those steps have been immortalized and renamed uh, the Laurel and Hardy Steps, and that's in Silver Lake in Los Angeles. Um, and oh, okay. A detective wrote a, a series of books on on the comedy trail, where he took all the Hal Roach shorts and features and found all those locations and then matched them up with the, the still frames from the films. And it's really lovely. What a great project for a detective. Um, and yeah. and you're right. There there's this thrill, you know, with the the Sons of the Desert, the Laurel and Hardy fans. You know, they live for that sort of thing. For the Back to the Future fans, you often are. I know, you know, hundreds of the fans that come from around the world who eat that stuff up. It's really wonderful. It's also, you know, it, it really with the is. Lord of the Rings fans who you know go to New Zealand and and uh, have a dinner in in a hobbit hole or. <laughs> In the Green Dragon or whatever, the Red Dragon. Is it the Green Dragon? Well, <laughs> I, you know what? I have not um, 
It's been a while since I've seen the Lord of the Rings movies, and I own the Hobbits, and I haven't even cracked those open yet. They're fun. I, I had imagined so. And and it, you know you can go to the some of the shooting sites. They they realized when the films got so big that they better start saving these sets, and they they didn't turn turn them into mini theme parks. While we were shooting Pale Rider, the Clint Eastwood film, Clint built this practical set on the top of a mountain outside of Sun Valley, Ketchum, Idaho. And I was talking with Clint. I said, you know, you should, this should remain as a, a tourist attraction. What a, a great, great thing. To people. But uh, un- unfortunately it was in a, on a national park and they said, no, we've got to dismantle the whole thing. I was like, wow. Okay. <laughs> oh, geez. Yeah. Did you hear about the event they had back in London a few years where they kind of recreated Hill Valley and they made a really big event out of it? Yeah, they, it's an ongoing thing. I think they recently did Blade Runner, where the actually the guests come as characters from the films and are in in an environment from that film. And then the, at, in the evening, during the day, you do role playing, and in the evening, they show the film, and then actors act the film out in front of the screen, uh, like you know, Rocky Horror started back in the 70s, you know, people acting out Rocky for a picture show at midnight. Only now what they did in uh, England for the Back to the Future was really great. They, they had Doc Brown actor doing the zip line as he's doing it on screen from the clock tower. And yeah, it was a really great event. They were going to bring it to the United States. I don't know what hitch they, they got. Probably Universal stepped in and said, you know, we want a good chunk of the profits here or whatever. That's what I was going to get to. Yeah, the the last thing I heard was that they were thinking about bringing it to to the U.S. I, I believe it was Jason Aaron that uh, that that told me that. So I was hoping for some kind of update because that's that's something I would love to experience. For your listeners who don't know who Jason Aaron is, he put together a wonderful documentary on on Back to the Future, mostly about the fans, which was really lovely about the life that. The fans have gained from the Back to the Future movies with, you know, Oliver and Terry Holler out of South Carolina building their own time machine and going around the world now raising money for the Parkinson's Foundation. I think they're great couple. They're well over a million dollars now. And they're they're producing an event. They're uh, once again, another fundraiser event, but they're going to try to recreate Hill Valley 1885 up in wow. uh, the gold country this, this September. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, let me let me uh, see if I have some information on that. Uh, they're going to go to Jamestown 1897, where the train from the film is, you know, the number three the steam engine. And they're going to have a day there. I think it's a four-day event. Let me see what I got here. Yeah, September 6th through the 9th, 2018. Um, they're going to do a Back to the Future in the Wild West, calling it Back to 1885. And if you go to com, you can read all about it. They're going to, I think they're going to have the um, ability to z- zipline people from the clock tower. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> and I think they'll probably put their time machine on the rails um, I don't know if they're going to have the, the locomotive pushing it or not. I'm hopefully going to get them hooked up and introduced to um, my friend Mick, uh, Mick Smith, who I do living history with from time to time. He was on the special effects team that blew up Doc Brown's train as it went over into the ravine. And uh, hopefully we'll get Mick out there to tell stories about working on that for four months. Oh, that, that's amazing. You're talking about the, the miniature that they yeah. blew up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm checking out the website right now. I'll definitely include that in the show notes for um, you know, for the listeners to check out uh, if they'd like to. Great. And I, I know Terry and Oliver will be appreciative of that. But the, that film, the, the, uh, we're go- uh, let's see, Out of Time, Back in Time. What was the title of Jason's film? It was Back in Time. Back in Time. It's funny, most of my work on that uh, I think is in the bonus material. And at the time, I was playing a, a, a character in a Victorian show. So I have these big mutton chops and I look pretty funny in the interview, um, <laughs> but they, they did a really great thorough job interviewing everyone from Huey Lewis to isn't, isn't even Spielberg in it. 
I feel like he he was, but it was, Robert Zemeckis was definitely in there. Um, Bob Gale. So they, yeah. they did a really thorough job getting uh, interviews on everyone about Back to the Future, and then focusing on how much the series means to fans. It it that to me was just worth the price of admission. It was really great. Yeah, it it really was. And just for the listeners, um, if you guys haven't checked it out yet, I did do a uh, interview with Jason Aaron and also reviewed uh, Back in Time with my co-host Albie uh, over at the uh, Back to the Future animated series podcast. So a little shameless plug there. Um, nice. But yeah, yeah, it's a great documentary. I know there was another one uh, out of time when they re uh, restored uh, one of the original vehicles. Yes, uh, Joe Walter and and mm-hmm. company. That's right. Finally, you know, working at Universal, I would see over at the Back to the Future ride, Biff's car and the and the DeLorean just naked to the elements. Unfortunately, the management did, never covered those things or just let them deteriorate. And uh, and there were even some of the flying cars, the taxi and so on and so forth behind the ride for years, um, just, you know, neglected. And it was so painful for me <laughs> uh, yeah. and I'm sure others, you know, like, like, uh, Jeff, Jeff and Tammy Castillo, um, you know, these, these adamant back to the future fans and collectors seeing those things going to waste. But luckily everyone pulled it together with Bob Gale's, uh, you know, leading the way to, uh, get permission to restore that, that number one car, the time machine. And now it's in a, a car museum, the Peterson in, in Los Angeles. Yeah, it's another great uh, documentary. Um, I own I own both, and so yeah. If anyone wants to see their restoration, they worked really hard, and Joe was really on everybody to make sure that they got all original parts too. It was it was quite something. I just did a, an episode, taped an episode of Joe's series. You know, he yeah, he's got a, a, a show where he each week has a guest somehow Back to the Future related come in. And help him put together a time machine model, and oh, wow. okay. uh, you know I'm terrible at at models, but I I did you know <laughs> follow the directions as best I could, and hopefully I won't be the the weak link, and and it won't fall apart where I I help put put it together, and and we talked you know stories of Back to the Future, and that's a that's a fun thing to look up. Hopefully you can find a link to Joe's little uh, online series. Yeah, I did watch a few episodes. I um. Uh, I did reach out to him, uh, seeing if he wanted to uh, speak about it, and I, I didn't get a reply. But that—that's—I'll uh, include the links uh, again in the show notes for the listeners. Uh, you, you just mentioned uh, models. Do you own any memorabilia um, you know, or prop, or and if you don't, what would you like to own? Oh, what would I like to own? Oh boy, I want that ortho left that I was hanging from. <laughs> that's the one thing. I wonder who's who's got that. <laughs> um, I had my old age makeup from my last day of shooting. Um, I, you know, usually we'd take the makeup off and throw it away. Um, but the last day of shooting, I got sentimental and I said, here, can we kind of take it off carefully? I'd like to somehow save it. And I did over the years. And, you know, right after the terrible market crash of, uh, 08 and let's see my, my father's death, I had a terrible, terrible years. Almost everyone did. Um, I kind of reached out and I said to the head of the Back to Future fan club, do you know, do you know anyone who might want to buy this makeup? Because I saved it. <laughs> and sure enough, a, a lovely Italian man who has a Back to the Future museum in Torino, in wow. Italy, he he paid me a few bucks and, and uh, picked it up. And so my old age makeup of George is, is in his museum. So that's kind of cool. I still have my coat, you know, uh, Spielberg bought everyone on the cast and crew uh, a leather jacket. I think it was made by, ironically, Nike, because there's a Nike emblem on it. But the nice thing about that coat is the tag, you know, in the back of the coat is the big uh, E.T. symbol. So, you know, it came oh, from Spielberg. Right, the emblem uh, logo. The emblem, yeah, the emblem logo. Uh, I don't know that I have much more. I have some very cool fan art. Uh, I have uh, almost a Andy Warhol-looking uh, print of old George McFly hanging upside down by a, an artist named uh, Christopher Murray, who does great 
work. Look for him. And then a, a, a cosplayer, wonderful guy named Brad Fife, um, actually made an old George McFly Back to Future Part Two action figure of me. Oh wow! And I, I own that. I could send you a photo of that. Sure. Um, yeah. It's very cool. So the 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 commercially available George McFly action figure that came out doesn't quite look like Crispin. Doesn't quite look like me. But it's George, you know, with a shirt sleeve or shirt tail hanging out. Um, it's fun. I I don't know how many people have both Crispin's and my autograph on one. You know, that might be something the oh, Uber fans might want to try to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. What else do I have? I just have uh, my memories. I, I, I guess I have call sheets and scripts, but other than that, I, I, I don't necessarily have sticky fingers. I didn't take things off the set. <laughs> not, not like the fans when they saw the DeLorean at Universal Studios. Yeah. Oh boy. It's interesting. Playing Mark Twain, the uh, PBS sort of docu-dramatization of his trip to the Holy Land in 1867 that I recreated. One of the things that pissed him off terribly were the Americans that he was traveling with, chiseling and breaking off pieces of holy shrines to take back to America, to their churches or wherever. Uh, that sort of thing uh, is reminiscent of people chipping away at the old time machine DeLorean. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It's an artifact. It's a holy thing. <laughs> yeah, it, it it is. It's it's one of the most iconic things for, uh, of the movie. I mean, um, I recently saw uh, Ready Player One with my son, and uh, shortly after, I I kind of tweeted out, you know, I, I hope that these uh, younger audiences doesn't refer uh, the the DeLorean as a Ready Player One car. <laughs> so. Oh, but it will happen. It's it evolution. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Not only did you have a, a part in Jason Aaron's uh, Back in Time documentary, uh, you had a part as well in Cassine Gaines's uh, book, uh, Where We're Going, We Don't Need Roads. Well, Cassine uh, approached me uh, via Facebook when he was getting the inkling to write a Back to the Future book. And I introduced him, I hooked him up with many of the cast and crew people that he wouldn't have probably found uh, without my help. Uh, the unfortunate thing is after... Uh, a nice interview with Cassine. He kind of, I don't know, he placed, it seemed, a lot of the things I told him in our interview aside and called misinformation on my chapter from old uh, information he, he got off the internet without really kind of double checking a lot of that stuff. He, so he, he uh, put in the chapter on, on my work uh, a lot of misinformation, unfortunately, and then let Bob Gale kind of come in and railroad edit. And, and question the things that I said, um, which is very odd. <laughs> uh, and I, I kind of took Cassine to task and said, why aren't you a, a good journalist and, and check your story before you go to publish, which he did not. So I, I, if, if a Back to the Future fan really wants to own a, a great book, Michael Clastorian's book is, is quite good. The uh, pictorial encyclopedia of Back to the Future, it's Really fantastic. The stories that will blow your mind. Did, did you know that Johnny Depp auditioned to be George McFly? I, I did not know that. Uh, matter of fact, I think I learned from you that Jeff Goldblum was also uh, considered for Doc Brown. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, the, the, the production sent the script to Christopher Lloyd to consider playing Doc Brown. He actually threw it in the garbage can. And um, unbeknownst to him, his girlfriend actually pulled it out of the garbage and saved it. But he was, he was uh, set to co-star on Broadway or off Broadway with Colleen Dewhurst in a show. And he wanted to be a serious stage actor at that, that point. And uh, so they started looking at other actors. They were considering Dudley Moore, John Lithgow and John was taking a year off. I remember to be with the kids about that time because I had tried to get John cast in another project and he passed on it because of that very reason. Um, and, and so Jeff Goldblum was their next choice. And meanwhile, back in New York, Colleen Dewhurst got sick and they kept postponing this stage show that Chris Lloyd was contracted to do with her. And he was like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? I need some work. And his girlfriend put the Back to the Future script on his desk and said, what about this? And then, as they say, the rest was history. Yeah. Would have been a different film with Jeff Goldblum and Eric Stoltz. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Sure. 
and then and Johnny Depp. And, and Johnny Depp as well. Uh, as we uh, wind down, I just had a few more questions uh, of you here. Um, the first one is actually one uh, I, I've been wanting to know, and there's a lot of fan theories about this. But does George and Lorraine know that their son is the same Marty from 1955? Well, they they have to be pretty stupid or <laughs> burned a lot of brain cells not to recognize. So if George is a science fiction writer and Lorraine has been supporting him in his science fiction writing and they believe in the science fiction that they probably realize it and just go along with it with a, a wink and an odd thing, you know, truth is stranger than fiction. I feel that they give him a very knowing look when uh, he's speaking to Jennifer just right outside. And I think that also explains why they bought him a brand new truck. So uh, I think that's uh, another fan theory that was thrown out that they do indeed uh, know. But I agree with you. I mean, I know it was 30 years, but how do you not forget a face uh, of the, the man who hooked you guys up? Really? And, and she falls for Calvin. I mean, that's when, right. <laughs> when, you, when, you, when you fall in love with someone, you don't necessarily forget that face. No, you're absolutely right. If it right. comes back as your own son, oh, dear, maybe she's, you know, We'll never speak of this, but my goodness, how is this possible? It's insane. Am I insane? And th thus, I think Lorraine drinks heavily. She does. And, you know, in her defense, you know, Marty is the third child. So unless she had an affair with Calvin Klein uh, after uh, Dave and Linda, yeah. I, I think uh, they, they have to, you know, realize that that uh, might be that Marty. If you look at Dave and you look at Linda, they look nothing like Marty. <laughs> let alone looking anything like Crispin or Leah. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. Now, is the, I know that just a few years ago, you were involved with the uh, the Back to the Future cruise to end uh, Parkinson's. Is there anything that you're currently involved with now or coming up that listeners can look into? Should they uh, want to donate or do anything that they can to help out? My participation in the films, I'm sometimes embraced by the uh, the fans and other times, uh, you know, the studios involved, they, they will keep as far from me as, as they seem to be able to get. And over the years, really being a part of those films, even though it has been dubious because of the whole, you know, Crispin debacle and lawsuit and everything that was finally settled out of court. Um, for many years, I didn't have anything going on, partly because of the, the studio uh, acing me out of things. And partly because, you know, I, I chose to finally get out of the Hollywood scene because the traffic in L.A. was driving me crazy. <laughs> but the fans brought me back into the fold, as were, and, and started appreciating me well. And, and uh, it was win-win. I got to have a, a really lovely time working on the films. And then I've had a really lovely time traveling all over the place due to the fans' demands. And I wanted to give back. And I thought what's the best thing to do? We'll try to do a fundraiser and have fun at the same time. So I designed the Back to the Future cruise to in Parkinson's. And we got about 40 to 50 passengers, fans to, to sign up for it from around the world. We had Russians and Brazilians. It was, it was really lovely. And I was able to get six of the uh, cast and crew members to come on that cruise. And really the fans were besides themselves. They, everyone had a fantastic time and, and we joined forces with the Star Trek crews, so we had uh, their events, and they came to our events, and it was really a win-win. Um, and we raised, you know, not a lot. We probably raised about ten grand after all was said and done for for the Parkinson's Foundation. Um, and I would love to do it again, um, but I don't think I could do it without partnering with a, a large investor or or Universal out and out. You know, uh, it would have been nice. I had Bob Gale's blessing, and then he started. Uh, backpedaling and I was like what anyway uh, I would love to do it again I've even had many folks who were on that cruise call me and say when's the next one where we want to sign up um, so if anyone listening to this has the desire to give back uh, to both the Back to the Future fans and uh, raise money for the Parkinson's Research Foundation again uh, bring it on I'd love to be a consultant or, or co-producer uh, 
in the meantime, I'm, I just finished co-writing a script and we'll be going into rehearsals soon for a live stage version of a Three Stooges show uh, where I'll be playing Larry Fine. We've got the licensing from the 3Com from the uh, Stooges family. And uh, we'll be touring that probably in the United States and Canada. So that's a, an exciting project. And, and I've got a couple of film projects that I'm in talks with and, of course, some fan cons. Now, if you welcome the interactions, is there uh, anywhere listeners can uh, maybe continue the conversation or if they had any other questions of you? Yeah, you know, I'm I'm pretty easy to find. I, I did a, was, uh, you know, I did a Reddit, uh, Ask Me Anything years ago, and I think people are still commenting on that thing. Um, ironically, a month after I did it, Chris McGlover did one. So there there would be some, a tube of reading. Uh, you know, sometimes there are these trolls and jerks who, you know, just want to tear you apart or, or say nothing but nasty things, uh, you know, try to skip that stuff. Um, there's interviews as, as you probably have seen, uh, on podcasts and webisodes and, and various other things around the, the internet. Or if, if you have, if you have to reach out to me, once again, uh, jeffreyweissman.com, uh, there's an email button right on the homepage and that gets to me. And that concludes my conversation with Mr. Jeffrey Weissman. Uh, I want to thank him again for giving me the opportunity to speak to him. It was a great honor. I had an amazing time, and I learned so much about him. So to kind of recap some of the things that I tried plugging uh, through our conversation, I did interview uh, Kasim Gaines, Mr. Jason Aaron, who directed Back in Time, which I also did a review on. Voice actor and actor A.J. Lacasio, who does the intro uh, for this show. And I've also done some other Back to the Future related episodes too, to include uh, a screening that I went to with some friends. And we also played a bit of a Back to the Future trivia and Jeopardy too. So that's a little bit early on and that was a lot of fun to do. So if you guys want to continue the conversation with me, you can find me on Instagram or Twitter at Paulstalgic. I also have a Facebook group page titled Podstalgic and Friends, where I post every episode that I do on all of the different podcasts that I host. The idea is to interact with uh, the listeners on a more intimate group setting. And if you enjoy the show and haven't already done so, please consider leaving an iTunes review. Uh, That really help out the visibility of the show. And I want to thank you guys for listening. So thank you, everyone, for your continued support. I'll see you guys next time. Thank you for listening to the Court and Parts Podcast Network. To listen to more Court and Parts shows, visit courtemparts.com.